Now, just a short prayer as we turn to the Bible. Father, we thank you for your word, the way that uh, uh, these books of the Bible, written so long ago, still speak to us today. We pray, Lord, this morning that your Holy Spirit will take uh, your word and really illuminate it for us to give us understanding and help us to apply it in our lives. Please help me, Lord, to say what you want me to say. Help us all to listen and to apply it as you want us to, to your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Our reading this morning is from uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 18. If you struggle to find that, in the Church Bibles, it's, it's on page 290. Page 290 in the Church Bibles, 1 Samuel 18. Uh, we're continuing our, our uh, series looking at uh, the life of David. Uh, this morning, the, the set passage, if you like, is most of chapters 18, 19 and 20. Now, don't panic, we're not going to read all that. It's going to be the, the first 12 verses, which I think are kind of um, typical of, of the whole section. And then we'll talk about a, a wider range of verses apart from that. But just, just remind you of the story so far. These last couple of weeks we've been introduced to David. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ray spoke about how David was anointed to be the next king. Uh, he was young, but he was a man after God's own heart. Last week, Mike reminded us of the story of David and Goliath and how God enabled David to kill Goliath, the, the giant, was it nine feet tall or something, uh, with just five smooth stones. Actually, he only, only needed one. And, and, and Goliath was dead. Today we're going to read about what, what follows straight on from that. Uh, we're going to read about a father and a son, Saul and Jonathan. And we're going to find that the two of them had very different attitudes to David. Um, we're simply going to do, going to spend quite a lot of time on Saul, then a bit, a bit of time at the end on Jonathan. And from each of them, we'll just draw out one lesson. So if you can't cope with three-point sermons, there are only two today, so we might, we might manage with that. So I'm reading uh, from 1 Samuel 18, uh, the first 12 verses. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They accredited David with tens of thousands, they thought, but me, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? 
And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. May God speak to us through his word this morning. As I said, we're going to spend most of our time looking at Saul. And as we know, uh, from the last two weeks, he's the king. He was the people's choice. But he stopped obeying God. In the verse that we read, we find that Saul was impressed by the way that David has defeated Goliath. So from now on, Saul keeps David with him, and he promotes him to a high rank in the army. But there's a problem. Saul has got used to the fact that when he returns from battle, the women always come out to meet him, singing, Saul has slain his thousands. And he likes that. He enjoys being praised, don't we all? Being recognised as the best. But this time, the women add an extra line to their song. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul is still successful in battle, but David is more successful. I wonder whether you've ever been in that situation where you're still successful, but somebody else is better. This makes Saul angry, very angry, from now on, it, keeps, it, says, it says it keeps a jealous eye on David. He even mutters, what more can he get but the kingdom? And the kingdom matters a lot to Saul. Then, towards the end of our, of our reading, that's where the spear-throwing starts, as Saul is provoked by an evil spirit. And Saul tries to pin David to the wall, twice. Interestingly, it then says, Saul is afraid of David. Now, if somebody was throwing spears at me, I'd be afraid. But no, it's not David who's afraid. Saul is afraid of David. Because he knows the Lord has left him, because he won't obey God. But the Lord is very much with David. David is God's man now. First, on in the chapter beyond where we, we read, we find Saul tries various ways to get rid of David. He offers his elder daughter Merab, to David in marriage. That sounds like a friendly gesture, but Saul's hope is that because David will feel obliged to, uh, to, to, to fight, uh, to earn Merab's hand, kill a, kill a few more Philistines, that David, in his attempt to win Merab's hand by fighting the Philistines, he'll, he'll get killed. That doesn't work because uh, although David still fights Philistines, he turns down the, the, chan- the chance to marry Merab. Uh, if he feels he isn't worthy. But, but later on in the chapter, you find that Saul tries the same tactic again, this time offering his younger daughter, Michal. This time, David eventually accepts. Maybe he liked her better. Um, and he kills the required number of Philistines that Saul asked for, and he marries Michal. But now Saul is even more afraid of David because he can see clearly that the Lord is on David's side. In the next chapter... Saul just gets more and more desperate to be rid of David. He orders Jonathan and his attendants to kill David. But they won't do it. Jonathan warns David 
uh, of the danger, and then persuades Saul that he, that to promise not to kill David. But by verse 10 of the, of the next chapter, Saul is throwing his spear again, and David has to flee. Saul pursues him, but this time it's David's wife, Michal, who, who warns him and enables him to escape. Towards the end of chapter 20, um, uh, Jonathan dares to, dares to speak up for David to, to his dad. But Saul's anger just flares up again. Uh, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. And he even hurls a spear at Jonathan in his rage. So things are just going from bad to worse. What can we learn from all that? I find it interesting just to think to myself, by the, by the end of the, these three chapters, Saul is, is in a terrible uh, frame of mind, uh, just obsessed by his, his burning desire to get rid of David at all costs. But how did Saul get to that point? It all started with a bit of jealousy. And actually, if you think about it, jealousy uh, often, as in this case, really the, the root of it is pride. Because we don't like it when somebody else is regarded more high than us. David was praised more than Saul, and that made Saul angry. The devil likes it when Christians get angry or feel jealous or their pride is hurt. The devil works on those emotions as he does with Saul. So Saul got just more and more resentful. It escalated. First he saw David as a rival, then he saw David as an enemy, and soon he wanted him dead. How about us? I don't think anyone is going to be throwing spears this morning. I'm prepared to, to dodge if need be. But can any of us honestly say that we're never tempted to feel jealous, bitter, or resentful towards anyone? That we've never got angry because of those sorts of emotions? And it may even be that right now some of us are feeling like that towards somebody. For example, you, you might feel that other people get noticed more than you. They seem to get more attention, more appreciation, more prominence, and people just ignore you. Maybe you've got real ability. Perhaps you enjoy some status because of it. Uh, within the church, you might do a bit of preaching and feel you're pretty good, really. It might, it might be as a, a singer or a musician or working with children. Or outside church in your everyday job or whatever you're involved in. Uh, the skills and, and experience you, you demonstrate in those activities outside church. You feel valued. People say nice things about you. They thank you. It's great. But then along comes somebody else who people rate more highly than you. And we begin to feel jealous at the attention that other people are getting. We want to be first. Those emotions, of course, are wrong. We know that, really. 
But if we don't repent of them, they will only get worse, like they did with Saul. Until we begin to see other people, even fellow Christians, as enemies, we can only see the bad in them. Anger and jealousy are terrible things. They can take over our lives. And if we examine ourselves and, and see any trace of that in any of us, and maybe we will, maybe I will if I think enough about it, we need to repent of them now before they get deeper and the devil uses them more. So, if that's the wrong way, what's the right way to react when we feel ignored, overlooked, or other people are preferred to us? The Bible gives us some great examples to follow. In a moment we'll talk about Jonathan, because he was a good example. But you can also think of, in the New Testament, you think of someone like John the Baptist, who was building up quite a following. But John was prepared to, prepared to say about Jesus, he, that is Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. That's a big thing to say, isn't it? There's somebody in your life who, in some way or other, might be a rival. Are we willing to say... Uh, he must become greater, I must become less. <laughs> the best example of all, of course, is Jesus himself, who was equal with God. He's still equal with God. But he humbled himself. Not just a little bit, but he made himself nothing. He was despised and rejected. And he knew he was going to be despised and rejected, but still he went that way because that was the right thing to do. Because he had the attitude of a servant. He came to serve us. He took the lowest place, even dying on a cross like the worst kind of criminal. He is the son of God. But remarkably, he's also the most humble person that ever walked this earth. He came not to be served, but to serve. Let us look at him and follow his example. There's, there's, there's a song about that that we'll sing at the end of the service. You might better think about what it is. Um, the good news is that in our struggle with anger, jealousy, envy, whatever it might be, we're not on our own. Jesus, who we see was our best example, offers us his Holy Spirit to help us. I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with Galatians 5. If you're not, look at it afterwards. In Galatians 5, Paul, first of all, lists the acts of the sinful nature. And there's something that lists that are quite familiar from this morning's message. It, Paul says in Galatians 5, the acts of the sinful nature, na nature include hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, envy, just like Saul. Maybe sometimes, if we're honest, just like us. But then he goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which Jesus wants to give us. Jesus, who is our perfect example, wants to give us his Holy Spirit. And that the fruit of the Spirit in, in, includes love, peace, kindness, self-control. We need those, or at least I find I need those. Um, in fact, to enable us to obey any of the teaching that we hear from this platform week by week or that we get when we read the Bible, we need the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without him. So day by day, let's ask Jesus to give us his spirit to help us. 
going to pause for a moment there and just pray a short prayer on that subject and then we go on to think about Jonathan. Lord God, you know every one of us. We ourselves can look at our lives and detect some of these sorts of emotions, detect our own pride, jealousy, anger, whatever it might be. Lord, you must see it all the more clearly. You see right into us, you see through us, Lord. Please help us to recognise where we may be grieving you, maybe even hurting others by our wrong attitudes to ourselves and to others. And Lord, please give us your grace to repent and to rely on the Holy Spirit within us to enable us to live lives that are Christ-like and to respond to those around us with the same love and humility and servant attitude as the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now briefly, let's take a look at Jonathan. We sometimes say, like father, like son. But that certainly wasn't the case with Jonathan. After looking at Saul and seeing what he was like, we then see such a difference when we turn to Jonathan and see the way that he responded to David's success. We've already noted that Jonathan is a good good example of how to be contented even when other people are given a higher position than us. Saul was paranoid about keeping his kingdom for himself and for Jonathan. But although Jonathan had the right to be himself the heir to the throne, he recognised that God was with David. David and Jonathan made a covenant. Uh, we read about that in chapter 18. It's renewed in chapter 20 in which Jonathan willingly handed over uh, uh, to David the symbols of his status, his robe, his sword, his bow, his belt. In later chapters, uh, when we get to chapters 23, 24, this is getting into Sean territory for next week, uh, in later chapters, Jonathan even says to David, "You, you shall be king over Israel. No holding on to that position. He must have been brought up expecting to be king one day. But here comes David and Jonathan and see David is God's man for that position. And Jonathan willingly relinquished his claim to the throne so that God's man could be in that position. So uh, we can think about that. But the the one thing I want to draw your attention to about Jonathan briefly at the end of this, this talk is to draw your attention to the covenant which Jonathan made with David. It was more than just words. It showed in practical ways, such as Jonathan warning David of danger and daring to, to speak up for David and to defend him to his angry father Saul. And if, if you were doing that to your angry dad, knowing that he was quite good with the spear, you'd think twice about doing it. But Jonathan was willing to do that because he was committed to David. There was a real bond of friendship between Jonathan and David. We're told several times that Jonathan loved David as himself. David and Jonathan showed real commitment, real loyalty and devotion as they supported one another and covered one another's backs, as it were. So to to finish, what can we learn from that? As I thought about that, this thought to me, well, if David and Jonathan could have that sort of commitment to each other, As a church fellowship, surely we should have a similar commitment to one another 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. Real commitment, real fellowship, loving one another as ourselves. Not just loving a few people who we happen to be on the same wavelength as them and we get on well, but loving one another with all our different personalities, all our faults, all our weaknesses. Loving one another as ourselves. Recently, in our uh, Zoom Bible studies on Wednesday evenings, we've been looking at the letter of James. We've got to the end of it now. In the the last few verses of of that letter, James speaks about how we are meant to pray for one another. How we're meant to share our joys and sorrows together. And if anyone is, begins to wander from the faith, rather than just moaning and gossiping about them, we're meant to help them to come back to the Lord. And that's fellowship. And as I finish, I just encourage us and encourage myself to consider seriously and to pray about our fellowship. There are lots of good things about our fellowship. People who visit comment on a friendly, welcoming church it is. But how real, how deep is our fellowship? Are we content to simply have a quick chat after a Sunday morning service and then go our separate ways for another week? Or are we really committed to one another, shown by the way that we spend quality time together, talk to each other, listen to one another, uh, find out how we can support each other, find practical ways to help, and of course pray for one another. Of course you can't do that to the same depth as everybody, but maybe there's somebody. Let's pray the Lord will show us where we need to change, and maybe for each of us, maybe the Lord might say to us, might point us to somebody in the fellowship and say, how about giving them a bit more time, a bit more support, not just on a Sunday, but in the week, praying for each other, encouraging one another. Think, how can I encourage so-and-so who looks a bit down at the moment? And just together, to support each other with that commitment, like David and Jonathan, who loved one another as themselves. Again, let's, let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for our fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for the ways in which we do help and encourage each other. We thank you for the love that there is between us. We pray, Lord, that that love will grow, that that commitment will grow, that maybe this week, as we maybe pray about this ourselves in in our own homes, for our our own lives, Lord, you might show each of us if there are ways that we can uh, be more and more committed to each other in real ways that are a blessing, showing love, understanding, offering a listening ear, giving our support, praying for one another, that we may build one another up in the faith until we all achieve unity in our Lord Jesus Christ. For your name's sake. Amen. Um, Before we share communion, we're going to sing um, Rock of Ages. That hymn where, you know, we look at a passage like this and it reminds us that we're not perfect. Some of our emotions aren't great. Sometimes our commitment to others isn't great. And at this time, we're about to share the bread and the wine. We just come with all our sin, our awareness of how far we've still got to go. But then we, 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 we come to the Lord and, and seem to say, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide 
myself in thee. We're going to say, nothing in my hand I bring. See, when we can't bring anything to the Lord to impress him and say, look, look what I've done. I deserve something from you, don't I? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. As we, as we, as we prepare to share the bread and the wine, we sing this hymn first. Let's just come with